0: I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail...
1: The days of hopping on a plane and heading anywhere you want have been paused by the pandemic, but what happens when some flying freedoms are reintroduced?
0: If you think about it, one of the most incredible developments of the past half century has been widespread affordable air travel. In 2019 alone, there were nearly 39 million international flights around the globe. For just a couple of thousand bucks, you and hundreds of other people can fly from Auckland to London, tens of thousands of kilometres, in just a few hours. The plane is so fast, you technically travel back in time. Honestly, the mind boggles. Now, last week on The Detail, Jesse Chang looked at how air travel from New Zealand has been affected, and whether and when things will ever get back to how they were pre-pandemic. Today we're looking at another aspect of post-pandemic flight. The decisions different countries are having to make when it comes to reopening international travel. Because it is happening. The Prime Minister has announced
1: a plan to allow vaccinated passengers into Australia with a pre-flight COVID test and one week of home quarantine.
0: As more flights left Heathrow today, it wasn't always clear whether those on board were departing from government advice. Things like vaccine passports, how might these work, not just in New Zealand but around the world? Will it be possible for globally recognised documentation to be developed, like an international driver's licence? Could your ability to travel be affected by what type of vaccine you received, or where you actually got the shot? What will it be like when you get on the plane itself? Will you have to wear a mask for 20 hours? Will there be social distancing? And if so, how can airlines, which operate on tight margins, possibly stay solvent if a third of their capacity is ripped off them? Paul Spoonley is a migration expert and professor at Massey University. How many times, ballpark figure, do you reckon you've been overseas, you've flown overseas in your lifetime?
1: Literally hundreds. Because I do a lot of work overseas, but also because I like travelling, It's a leisure activity, and because I'm the chair of a major international organisation. So does Australia count?
0: Yes. Yes, it does, for the purposes of this podcast. Literally
1: hundreds and hundreds
0: of times. I wonder whether you think that it's something that we've almost become too used to. Do you know what I mean by that?
1: I do, and I think we have taken it for granted, and COVID has taught us that we can't. So... I mean, I, I first travelled overseas to do a graduate degree in the 1970s. And what I was paying for a trip to the UK in the 2000s was almost the same dollar value. Mm. And, and in that time, what we had was this huge industry which employs millions and millions of people, best estimate about 48 million people around the world, that facilitates travel by air and which is actually very very cheap so so the through the 70s right up until um well last year literally we have this mass travel for tourism or for other purposes and if i can just finish in the year before we closed shop closed our borders Our cross-border activity amounted to 7 million people each year. Mm. That's 7 million coming and another 7 million going. It is a lot.
0: Wow. So this, I mean, this is probably, of all of the remarkable impacts that COVID has had on the world, I think, I'd I'd be interested to, to see what you think of this, there is an argument to say that this is probably the most dramatic change of the lot.
1: It's one of the most dramatic in terms of the current period of globalisation. So we've seen the world globalise in new ways and technology has been part of that. And that's probably been enhanced, if anything, by what's happened under COVID. But if we think about the things that we've stopped doing or can't do, then certainly international travel is one of those and and it's it's hugely disruptive. I mean, I was I've been looking at the international data and the uh, reports coming from IATA or from the WHO or from you know the UN World Tourist Organization are still saying that we're not going to resume mass travel for another one or two or three years yet. Mm. So there's a lot of talk about opening up borders, but in fact if you look at the numbers travels, international travel at least, is very, very much a, a a slim down, very small version of what we saw prior to 2020.
0: In early August, the International Air Transport Association released its World Air Transport Statistics, showing the impact COVID-19 had on air travel in 2020. And if you're in the industry, it made for pretty bleak reading. 1.8 billion passengers flew during the course of the year, which... Sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but it's a 60% drop off from the 4.5 billion who travelled in 2019. A million jobs disappeared, and net losses totaled $126 billion. Numbers so large I have a bit of trouble even quantifying them. But Paul Spoonley made an interesting observation just before. He reckoned it would be one, two, maybe three years before mass travel resumes which gives us a bit of a buffer period to figure out what that mass travel will actually look like. So what are the big questions airlines and countries are pondering at the moment?
1: Well, the biggest one and the one that a lot of international agencies and countries are thinking about is risk mitigation. So so what do you do in terms of pre-departure or even what happens on the airplane and then when somebody arrives in your country? or when they arrive back into your country? What is it that you're going to do at the border that makes sure that you know that they are safe in terms of not introducing COVID into the community? So I think one of the key things is going to be around the vaccine passport. Vaccine passports, proving a person's immunisation status, are expected to be in place around the turn of the year, but it's unclear if the digital document will be more than for just international travel. Overseas, a similar pass is used to allow access to restaurants and clubs and even sports venues, but whether the government has similar thinking here isn't yet known. Unfortunately, a lot is going to have to rely on that vaccine passport and at the moment, internationally... It is a bit of a nightmare. Mm. We've got all sorts of products in the market. We've got all sorts of expectations from different governments. Some areas like the EU certainly have some degree of consistency.
0: The EU's vaccine passport, otherwise known as its digital COVID certificate, is being rolled out over the next six weeks. Its quick response code is equipped with a digital signature key where an individual's vaccine information is stored. It verifies that a traveler has been vaccinated against COVID-19 and that they've recently had a swab test for the virus. If they were infected, it will verify they've since recovered.
1: But if you look at the international organizations, let's take IATA, the International Airlines um, Association, then their major challenge is going to be harmonization. The second bit of the laundry list is really around what should we expect in terms of those bits of the infrastructure that help us travel. So what should happen in terms of airports? What sort of protocols, uh, documentation? What sort of procedures are we going to see in those? What are we going to see on the airplanes? And so there's some really interesting work that's being done around the world at the moment in terms of testing at the airports. What should we do in terms of treating different people who've got different risk profiles in different ways Mm. what can you expect in terms of facilities and you know when you look around the airports a lot of the normal facilities are simply not there and then what are the airports going to do while you're in their care around maintaining your um, safety Mm. and therefore the safety of the countries that you're going to I think the The issue um, around what rights you have. So I know we're very preoccupied in this country around returning New Zealanders in the chokehold that's MIQ. It's been described as a lottery in human misery, and now MIQ faces potentially its biggest challenge yet in court. This afternoon, the group known as Grounded Kiwis filed documents in the High Court in Wellington. It alleges the COVID response minister, health minister, and the boss of MB have all broken the law in the way they set up and are running managed isolation and quarantine. If you look around the world, that's happened in various ways and different countries and so at the moment for example there's a a big fight in the US around Indians who have gone back to India from the US and now can't get back into the US Mm. and I think what we're probably going to need is some sort of documentation that will be recognized by different countries different authorities and there are all sorts of challenges there
0: Yeah, well, I I mean, I was trying to think of examples of that that already exist in the world, and there aren't many that I could think of, although one that does seem somewhat analogous is the idea of, like, you know, an international driver's license. Um, Is that, like, I don't know, would that be a possibility, an international vaccine passport kind of thing?
1: Well, um, an international vaccine passport kind of thing is exactly what's on the drawing board. (laughs) And the the EU has one. Unfortunately, different countries do different things. And by the way, different states or provinces do different things. Mm. So, for example, you know, it's it's recognised and you can use it in various countries, but other countries don't recognise it or don't use it in the same way. So, for example, in Germany, the different states have different requirements. Mm. And when you get to places like Canada, different provinces have different requirements. Um, The one at the moment that's really proving quite problematic is the UK, which has specified what vaccines it accepts as appropriate vaccines, is for them, but then it also specifies who can give those vaccines. And at the moment, most of Africa and Latin America, if you get your specified vaccine, let's say it's um, Pfizer, in, in, part, in other parts of the world, then the UK, when you arrive at the border, will treat you as unvaccinated because of where you got where you've got your, um, your your vaccine.
0: What's the rationale behind that? That makes absolutely no sense to me. Is there, is there any degree of, of logic to that?
1: Well, I, the reaction's been very interesting, both from UK citizens who've got um, family members in those countries that are, at the moment, what, called, what is called red-listed. Because what you've got, the UK has divided the world up into green and red. They used to have amber, but they've dropped that. And so we really are talking about people who are coming from red countries, countries which are seen as being very high risk.
0: At the moment, the red list for England includes Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Haiti, Panama, Peru and Venezuela.
1: But the other thing is that the the, the racism bit is the way in which the world's divided up. So even though you've got Pfizer, two shots of Pfizer, which is OK, the UK says that's OK, but because of where you got it, and I guess the underlying assumption is because they don't have trust in the systems that have given it to you, uh, therefore you don't you don't count. So at the moment, the as the UK begins to open up its borders in in a lot of ways, it's privileging vaccinated people against non-vaccinated. But the question of where you were vaccinated and and uh, where you're coming from in terms of that red list of countries is is quite
0: an issue i suppose this is sort of the double-edged sword of globalization isn't it in the sense that globalization like a, a crucial element of globalization is trust and having trust in other countries and the procedures that other countries sort of have and you trust some countries more than others looking at it from the outside this is straight up xenophobic but i guess in a sense there is some justification that you could have towards it? Am I thinking through this through straight, do you think?
1: No, no, indeed. And and you can think of a New Zealand example. If you think back to when we closed our borders to people coming from India. Some members of the Indian community have reacted angrily to the suspension of travel from their country after a surge in COVID-19 cases at the New Zealand border. Yeah, we have been inundated with messages of outrage, a feeling of incense about this uh, decision What the uh, Kiev Indian community is saying is a half-baked decision taken by government, most likely to divert attention from their other unproven results, especially in terms of vaccinating our frontline border workers and uh, creating smart borders that they have been promising. Unfortunately, the Indian New Zealander community has been an easy target to divert attention. There there was a very significant spike in cases in India. Um, Systems in India weren't coping particularly well, and we thought it was a risk, or our government thought it was a risk. But of course, members of the Indian community here and others of us, I think, thought of it as being a degree xenophobic. We we didn't trust their systems. We didn't trust the people that were coming from that particular country. And so, yes, and, and that's one of the consequences of what we've seen. We've seen people around the world who can afford to travel, who can get around the systems doing so. And one of the issues that is going to arise, which uh, organisations like the WHO and the UN have identified is that As we move into a new era of international mobility, which won't be like the mass mobility we saw prior to COVID, Mm. it will be very much governed by where you're from but how much you can afford to pay for international travel. So the, the very cheap fares that you and I were used to prior to COVID probably won't exist because airlines, and I suggest the infrastructure like the airports, will actually have to pay more costs. Uh, They will be trying to recoup some of the losses that they've made and they will have to charge more for the privilege of travelling around the world. And so one of the expectations is that we'll have to pay more for any travel that we do internationally.
0: Picking up on this, think about something as simple as social distancing on flights. Presumably when mass air travel is available again, there will be some element of social distancing for some period of time. Let's imagine that means you can't sit next to someone. There has to be an empty seat between you and the next passenger. That means airlines, which operate on tight margins to maximise passenger numbers and profit, are immediately down 30% in their capacity. There are only so many costs you can cut. So one of the ways you can boost your revenue is by increasing the cost of a plane ticket. And that's just one example of social distancing.
1: Well, IATA has produced what is called a roadmap, which is talking about these sorts of things. And it talks about the biosafety of travel, of air travel. One of the assumptions it makes is that you'll have to wear a face mask throughout the travel. Um, There should be contactless check-in, for example, and health screening. And then, of course, they assume physical distancing, which is what you are talking about. Mm -hmm. But it it goes further than that, Emil, because they also talk about what sort of cleaning and disinfection process or protocols need to be in place. And they're talking about a new cabin architecture so that how you separate people in a cabin might mean that you don't have cabins that we used to see pre-COVID. And they're talking about things like hospital-grade filters, air filters, Mm -hmm. So the cost structures of the new plane and of the travel industry are going to be quite different from what they were in the past. And we don't know how long long this is going to carry on for, do we? So that it might be a short-term issue or it might be a long-term issue. And that's what we are... I mean, I don't think any of us can foresee this is proving to be a very unreliable virus in the sense and, and, and a very destructive one. So you know how long how long will we expect to see these sorts of processes in place? Who knows?
0: I can hear people bellowing at their radios, Paul, or their headphones, or however they are consuming this oral content, and saying, Great, this is fantastic international air travel is a blight on the environment. So much international travel is completely unnecessary. This is a silver lining of COVID. maybe this will be a reality check to the the lifestyles that we've become accustomed to. What is your take on on somebody who, who would make those arguments?
1: Well, well some of those phrases I'm not sure I'd entirely agree with Emil, but in, t- in terms of, in terms of a reassessment of mass international travel, absolutely. I mean, remember that many airlines have parked up their planes, many planes are rented, and the the nature of those rentals is is just going to have to be renegotiated. So already, we're going to see quite a big part of the airline fleet taken out of service, and it might not come back into service. So it, it is a very disruptive event, which is going to change airline travel, quite apart from the things we've been talking about. But remember, in the year before we went into lockdown, we were going to hit almost 4 million tourists coming to New Zealand. And at the same time, something like 2, 2.5 million of us, you know, travelled anyway. So the, 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 the volume of people coming in and out of New Zealand mostly by air, was huge. And I think many of us were beginning to feel uncomfortable about the the mass tourist travel to New Zealand anyway. I mean, you know, those of us who go tramping were starting to realise that uh, the Tongariro crossing was like a sort of continuous flow of people day and night, really. And I think it's that moment where, not only for environmental reasons... But for a whole lot of other reasons, we probably need to do rethink our models of uh, tourism, and what it is we're prepared to accept. So, do we do we begin to charge people for the myriad of costs that they impose upon the New Zealand infrastructure and the New Zealand landscape? Do we begin to reduce the number of people at particular um, destinations? Because, of course, we've got destinations that rely on those buses pouring in and unloading lots and lots of people. Mm. Was that model ever going to be sustainable? And, of course, I think what we've done is reach a point where,
0: you know, we're going to
1: have to rethink that anyway. And all of the international projections do think that mass air travel will not be the same in the future. And I think we need to get ahead around that and think, well, what is it that we want as a country? What is it we're likely to see in terms of the provision of air travel? Are we going to see planes that are much more either fuel efficient or use alternative fuels? Are we? Do we want to see other things that are fit around that in terms of being a much more efficient but also a much more environmentally aware form of transport?
0: That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded by New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform, and if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell, and thanks to Paul Spoonley. Finally today, The Detail has been nominated for the Listener's Choice Award at the New Zealand Podcast Awards. If you enjoy our work, we'd love your vote just head to the NZ Podcast Awards website and follow the prompts. Matewa.